here to cover. Pentecost is a very, very special day representing the first fruits of God's plan. Those will be in the first resurrection. It proclaims liberty through the land in many respects. Uh, there's an awful lot of meaning. The law was apparently given on Pentecost when they came out of the land of Mitzrayim. If you go to Exodus 19, it shows that it was in the third month. And there are those who've studied the chronology very carefully there and felt that it did come on Pentecost. I think it makes sense that it did because it is called the perfect law of liberty. <clears throat> and liberty is provided on the day of Pentecost. So there are a lot of analogies, a lot of meanings, a lot of symbolisms that need to be discussed regarding this day. And let's go first of all to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. Moses was still at Sinai and God spoke to him. So these are words in a very landmark situation. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. <clears throat> six years you shall show, sow your seed, and six years shall you prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. That which grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine, uh, undressed, for it is a year of rest. <clears throat> and the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you and for everyone with you and for your cattle and so on. So he proclaims, first of all, the seven-year cycle of the land cycle. And I'll get back to that in a moment, a little later in this chapter, so let's not comment much on that. There's a particular analogy I want to draw from it. But let's go on down here to verse 8. And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years, uh, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then shall you cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. Now, an apparent uh, thing comes, or something becomes apparent to us, and that is that we have a count fifty to Pentecost. The count fifty leads from Passover, which is the beginning of the deliverance from sin, and the days of unleavened bread, the end of which they were sprung from Mitzrayim, I believe, and we'll probably get to a sermon on that. But 50 days from the time that the count starts at the days of unleavened bread, you have Pentecost that occurs, count 50, and you have Pentecost, which we will see symbolizes liberty and freedom. Now, the Jubilee year also means freedom. It's freedom in a little different way because it has to do with a lot more people. <clears throat> Pentecost has to deal with a very small group of people, the first fruits. The Day of Atonement and the marriage of the Lamb and the proclamation of a Jubilee 
means that the wife has been prepared, she marries her husband on the Day of Atonement, and that marriage will then provide freedom and liberty to all people still existing on the face of the earth at that time. So they will have liberty from bondage and from slavery and from the wiles of the devil who will be bound. So Pentecost and atonement are tied very, very closely together. Pentecost being a smaller harvest, a harvest of first fruits only. Uh, Revelation 7, Revelation 14 show that the 144,000 who are in the first resurrection are the first fruits. No more, no less. The, this is the sum total of the first fruits, the first resurrection is 144,000. So that's a small resurrection compared to those 100 million who will survive into the millennium are those billions who will be resurrected into the great white throne judgment. So while it pictures liberty for us, Pentecost, by the coming of the Spirit, because God's Spirit produces liberty where it is given. Let me read that in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3.17. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the eternal is that spirit, and where the spirit of the eternal is, there is liberty. So God gave his spirit on the day of Pentecost for the first time to be indwelling, for man to be begotten of it there in Acts 2. So he gave his spirit, and therefore that symbolized liberty for those people who received that spirit. And only... The first begotten sons from basically the New Testament church on down through today until the return of Christ are the only ones who receive that spirit through proper repentance and baptism and understanding of God's plan and purpose. And they receive the liberty from the ways of this world and come to serve God with the freedom and liberty that his spirit and his law bring to us. Freedom and liberty from what? The penalty of death, or the penalty of sin, which is death. We are free from that once forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ. So it took that at Passover time to spring us, us continuing to put sin out of our lives, not saying, well, once saved, always saved, but continue to grow and overcome to be part of the kingdom of God. So we have been given liberty from the penalty of our past sins. And by the power of His Spirit, we are given strength and the ability, the courage to fight and overcome sin and to be filled with the hope of the promise of being one of those first fruits at the time Christ returns. So the count 50 is there for you and me to bring us that liberty in a small group. Then the larger jubilee at atonement is for the whole world where we can become a blessing and help set them free 
from the bondage and have the liberty and freedom and peace that will be the millennium and great white throne judgment. So there's a great deal of significance in the tie-in between the Count 50 of Pentecost and the Jubilee of Atonement. There is a period of growth in the summertime in between. Now let's see what else I had to go with this. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 1, let's tie here. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we have freedom through Christ, through forgiveness, and don't have to suffer the penalty of broken law. Notice James chapter 1. James 1. And here I want uh, verse 25. Talking about someone looking in a mirror. Whoso looks, whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So again, we see that the Holy Spirit gives us freedom, it gives us hope, it gives us liberty, and that is tied up very closely with... Uh, Pentecost, and that law of liberty he speaks of was apparently given on Pentecost when they came out of Egypt. So they are all tied very closely there. The law, the Holy Spirit, liberty and freedom. The right kind of freedom. Now let's consider Leviticus... Oh, I'm not done here yet in Leviticus 25. Got some more to go. <clears throat> I just introduced the... Jubilee, and I've already been explaining it, but it comes on atonement. Verse 10, And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land, all the inhabitants thereof. See how that's tied with the liberty and the freedom of the law given at Pentecost. You shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. So if someone sold or lost their land during a fifty-year span or forty-nine-year span, their land came back to them. They had a chance to redeem themselves and start all over if they had a parent or a grandparent who frittered their land away. Uh, they got a new start and liberty from the uh, indebtedness, debt slavery that they may have gotten themselves into with profligate or careless or mismanaged living. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of your field. Now tie that in with the fiftieth year, the jubilee, which is probably the beginning of the millennium. You don't plant that year. That which you have, that which the world will receive, is what? It is a gift of God. It is something that He gifts the world with. With liberty, with freedom, with everything that they are going to need to sustain themselves. 
So it makes sense that he would have them not plant on the 50th year because it pictures a time when God will begin to provide in a way that he has not up to that time. Very important symbolism there in the 50th year. Every man gets his possessions back. If you're poor, the land was never to be sold. I think it says even later in this chapter. You could lease it for whatever remained of the Jubilee year, either the first year or the 48th year or whatever. You could only rent it, but you could not sell it, or were not supposed to, because it would come back to the original owners in the Jubilee. Uh, And it explains that in these next few verses. Verse 17, You shall not therefore oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Eternal your God. So, people are to be free, at liberty from, oppression. Uh, And when the millennium starts, the world will be free from the oppression of the devil, from the oppression and the slavery of the new world order, which is the times of the Gentiles laid on people. That will be removed. Verse 18, Wherefore you shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. So there will be peace and safety. The land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill and dwell therein in safety. What a wonderful world that's going to be. And if you shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. People say, Well, here's a loophole. We don't plant on the seventh year, which is at the beginning of this chapter. I didn't comment on much. What do we do now? It's the seventh year. He says, if you will keep the seventh year, verse 21, then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall sow the eighth year and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. Now, why did he do that? I think there is a very important symbolism involved here. He will give you three times at the harvest or end of the sixth year to take care of the seventh, The eighth, when you do plant, but through the eighth, or actually through the ninth, you also don't have any fresh fruit until the fruit of that year is produced. Who are you? What are you doing here? You're here as a potential first fruit of the harvest of God. The world is going to be blessed by you. Remember Hebrews 4? About how the millennium is pictured by the weekly Sabbath? Direct correlation there. Seven days, 7,000 year plan of God plus the eighth day. God is going to triple bless the world at the end of the sixth year the 6,000th year, when the 6,000 years comes to an end, which is very soon now. 
by making a harvest of 144,000 in a resurrection who will be provided for the good of the world to eat from and be blessed by during the seventh year, the millennium, a thousand years, that we would then become a blessing to the world. And the eighth year, the great white throne judgment, another period of time, another day, if you will, the eighth day, where we will still be a blessing to the world that those who have been resurrected in the second resurrection can look to for succor, for food, for strength, for everything that they need as the bride of Christ providing it to them as the mother of all millennial and great white throne judgment people. At the end of that time, all people will have an opportunity or have had an opportunity at salvation and will either be in the kingdom of God or will go into the lake of fire at the third resurrection. So everyone that is left of all of mankind throughout history, and it will be the great vast majority of people because God is a successful God and Father then all will be able to produce fruit for themselves because all will have become God. And that which was planted in the sixth year will have blessed the seventh year, the eighth year, and now everyone can eat again in the ninth without needing sustenance or support. What an incredible thing that is. I never understood that before this afternoon, but it fits. It fits the liberty, it fits the count of both Pentecost and the Jubilee. Now do you understand better what the 250s mean and how the Jubilee is so important on the Day of Atonement, the same day the bride marries Christ? Everything fits together here. So every seven years, they were to receive triple blessing at the end of the sixth to carry over. Isn't everything in this book about the plan and the purpose of God and the spiritual fulfillment ultimately? So wouldn't he set this cycle of years of seven? And wouldn't he set seven times seven plus one as a bigger picture of bigger blessing for more people. So Pentecost then is about us. It's about the first fruits who are being prepared to feed the world for two, even three days, or toward three days. Now let's go to Leviticus 19. Here in verse 23, men are pictured as trees in many places throughout the Bible, and we could, we could spend several sermons showing that. Uh, so, and we've been there, we've seen that many times in Isaiah and other places. So here I want to address the matter of trees as well. Leviticus 19, 
verse 23. And when you shall come into the land, and shall have planted all manner of trees for food, then you shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised. Three years shall it be as uncircumcised to you, it shall not be eaten of. So when you plant a fruit tree, if it produces a pear or a peach the first year, and five the second year or whatever, and maybe a few more the third year, you are not to eat, you're not to pick or eat any of that fruit for the first three years. It's counted as uncircumcised, outside of use. Uncircumcised, we understand the analogy of, I suppose. Israel was set aside as the people of God by physical circumcision. We are set aside not by physical circumcision, but by circumcision of the heart, a spiritual uh, delineation. So it was to be considered unclean or unusable, uncircumcised for the first three years. But in the fourth year, all the fruit thereof shall be holy to praise the eternal with. So all the fruit, the fourth year of that tree, was to go to God. Okay? Like a tithe would go to God. You're not to eat of it on the fourth year either. That goes to God. And in the fifth year shall you eat of the fruit thereof, that it may yield to you the increase thereof, I am the eternal your God. Now he's emphasizing that there is an emphasis here and a reason behind what he's doing that and why he is doing this, and that is to show us that he is God. Planting a fruit tree, letting it go for three years, giving the fourth year to God, and then you enjoying it the fifth year, is there, that ordinance, to show you who God is. Now let's tie this together with ourselves, because we're here about ourselves, are we not? Well, yes, I'd say today we are. This is the Feast of the first fruits. It is about us. It's not about anybody else. Atonement, or trumpets, is about us. Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, Great White Throne Judgment, are about somebody else. Us being there to provide. But this day, an atonement is for us with a projection to help others. The Jubilee declared at atonement is that part where we then become usable to the rest of the world to bring them liberty and health and happiness and so on. If you've planted fruit trees, you may have noticed that the first year or two, very, very little fruit comes on. The strength of the tree grows into, or goes into, growing a trunk and limbs, leaves. It doesn't produce much. And that which is produced is often small and knotty, has knots on it, or funny shapes or various things, it, it isn't something that is really that appealing, unclean, uncircumcised, to use this analogy. 
For the first three years, it's pretty immature. It doesn't produce much. Now, when we come into God's truth as a new tree being planted toward the kingdom of God, he describes us as, as novices or newcomers, newly planted, if you will, says, do not ordain anyone who is a novice, who is new to the truth. Make sure they have gone beyond that and can produce the kind of fruit that is usable for mankind. So, when we first come in, we don't know a whole lot. It's all new, and we can't produce much fruit for others. Then, the fourth year comes a time when we are given to God. God will have His tenth. You know that? But there has to be a period of growth in between. Notice Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. And here in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So, as we come in, we have the milk of the Word. We are immature. We are young. We are novices. And over a period of time, we are to leave behind, not forget, but going on from those basic fundamental principles, I mean, you know about the Sabbath, the holy days, about law and grace. You know a lot of basic doctrines. But you have to move forward from there on toward perfection. That is our goal and our purpose, to become ripe, to be usable, to be a service, to be a help, to be succor and health and nutrition for others. Luke 8. Luke 8. And here, let's go to verse 14. Here he's talking about the seed being the Word of God that is uh, sowed. And I'll not go back through the whole parable, but let's pick it up here in verse 14. And that which fell among thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. They're sowed as seed, but something prevents them from growing, leaving behind the basic fundamentals and moving on to perfection, so that they do not produce fruit to perfection. He's telling us that's our goal. That's our purpose, is to produce fruits of perfection. Or another word for perfection might be maturity. To become spiritually mature, or as a tree to produce full, juicy, spiritual, succulent fruit. Now, none of us will reach absolute perfection in the way that the Father and the Son are perfect in this life. It, it's simply beyond us. But we have to move toward spiritual maturity 
and that is a move toward their perfection. So we have to produce fruit of maturity or of perfection. Not get choked out by the various things that can choke us out and keep us from producing. Notice Psalm 50 in that regard. Psalm 50. uh, Here I want verse 2. Here's what God is looking for. Psalm 50. Verse 2. Out of Zion... Remember Hebrews 12, 22, and 23? Zion is the church. Jerusalem is the church in a spiritual understanding. Out of the church, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Now we are here to produce fruit, to become as perfect and mature as we can, to be something that the world can imbibe and enjoy and receive health from. And what we lack, the Feast of Trumpets is for, where we are transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, when, where that which is imperfect becomes perfect, that which was corruptible becomes incorruptible. So we do the very best we can. We overcome, as Revelation 2 and 3 tells us, we must do. And then he makes up the difference by transforming us, taking away our human nature, and giving us the nature of God Himself. Then, we go on the honeymoon and come back with Christ and the Father to rule the earth at Zion, at Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and out of Zion then will shine our perfection. Total perfection. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. So he's talking about the return of Christ, when Zion will be redeemed, when Zion will be made perfect. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, for I have made (coughs) with them... For I have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God has made, Christ has made with you and me, a covenant that if we would sacrifice our ways, mortify the deeds of the flesh, and come to have His understanding and character, His attitude, and sacrifice ourselves. Crucify self, as Paul put it, that he will gather us when he returns. That's what he's talking about. The gathering of the 144,000 at Christ's return. And the perfection of beauty then beginning to shine from Zion. So there is where the first fruits wind up. Having been prepared having been ripened, having been matured to the point that they can be of use to God. So those three years of uncircumcision, of growth, give us time 
to be transformed from the weak and the base, the naughty, the small, the malformed, into juicy, succulent, ripe fruit. Something that is worthy to be presented to God. We'll get a little bit more of that in a moment. It is his tithe. It is treated like a tithe. And he will have his tithe. We've talked about that many, many times. In the fifth year, it's there for everyone to use. Not just the owner of the tree. I mean, it's talking here of you planting a tree. But God has planted trees. And we are not mature. We have to mature. Then we have to be worthy of being selected by God for His use the fourth year. The fifth year, we are made available to anyone who needs fruit. To anyone who has thirst or hunger. Does that tell us who God is? He gives us this five-year plan to show who He is and what He is able to do and what He is able to accomplish through the analogy of a fruit tree. There's an awful lot of spiritual understanding to be gleaned from the Old Testament. Now let's go to Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27. And here, uh, beginning in verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the eternal's. It is holy to the eternal. And if a man will at all redeem anything of his tithes, he shall add therefore the fifth part thereof. Now, let's say you planted a field and you wanted to keep all of that particular field right there for seed for next year. The only way you could keep it and not pay a tenth on that particular field was to take from another field and add 20% to this field for God. Or no, yeah, to keep all of this you had to add 20% to your tithe. Then you could keep that part that you wanted to redeem. In other words, when you harvested out of all your crops, 10% went to God. But if there's a particular part that you wanted to keep, then you had to add 20% extra to the tithe in order to be able to keep that part that you wanted, called redeeming that particular part of it. You could do that with grain. You could do that with garden or whatever. But notice something. And concerning verse 32, the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy to the eternal. So, your flocks and your herds have increased during the year. And then you run the young ones of the year under a rod, counting them. Every tenth one is God's. Every tenth one. 
He shall not search whether it be good or bad. And if he change it at all, then both it and the chains thereof shall be holy, and it shall not be redeemed. (laughs) It didn't do any good to try to redeem that tenth one if you liked it, because that one plus another one still had to go to God. Now, why the difference between trees and vegetables and animals? Because you are not necessarily pictured as a vegetable in the Bible. You are, in a sense, produce, uh, symbolized as a tree which produces fruit, yes. But by and large, for the most part, we are the flock of God. The flock, the herd of God. In every tenth belongs to Him, and once it is designated as His, it cannot be taken away from Him. That is the particular analogy or symbolism there. Once God chooses it, it's His. Now, when you start counting those sheep or goats or cattle, they're milling around over here. They're all mixed up. But as they go under that rod, every tenth is specifically called out, specifically numbered, specifically named, singled out as God's. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John six forty four. You can't come. You mill around. You don't know God. But that selection is made by God Himself. He is picking those from whom or from which He will select the first fruits. Many called, few chosen. Just enough to make the 144,000 which are pictured by this day. Once God selects you, no man can take you away. You're His. You're a sheep of his flock. Very deep spiritual meaning to the way this count is made. Let's go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. We've referred to this many times in referring to the church having been split, having been divided and destroyed. And he's talking about that here in verse 11. says, Then I said, Lord, how long? How long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it, in the destruction of this country, the military takeover, the army of the north coming, as Jeremiah 50 says, the people fleeing to Zion from the northern army, getting out of its clutches. Out of this death and destruction and captivity of this land, 
Yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. This is talking on two levels. First of all, the destruction of spiritual Israel, the church. And just as the destruction comes on the rest of Israel, spiritual Israel, the church, will have 10%, God's 10%, those designated, called by Him, will be brought. They will then be trained as firstfruits so that when a remnant of Israel comes back at the Jubilee, the beginning of the millennium, that will also be 10%, essentially, that survives and lives on into the millennium of all Israel. We would then be there as God's first tithe to help those people who are the tithe of physical Israel. Tithing is not just to get your money. Tithing has deep spiritual meaning for God's people. It cannot be redeemed. It must be done. It is a salvational issue. God will or will not have you. You will either be part of His tithe, of His remnant, or you will not. But once He designates you, you really have no choice, do you? Can't be redeemed. Satan should not be allowed to touch you. Mankind should not be able to redeem you or buy you back from God. You've been bought and paid for by the price of Christ's blood. The price has been paid. You're already sold. You're already owned by God. Therefore, you cannot be redeemed. Powerful analogies here. Tie that with Malachi 3. This is... I have used before, but it is so important to understand God is working with His tithe that He is pulling out of the church and then later a physical Israel. He's talking about the terrible things within the church here in the book of Malachi. And in chapter 3, He says, Behold, I will send My messenger, and he shall prepare the way before Me, And the Eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, He shall come, says the Eternal of hosts. (coughs) So to the end-time remnant, He is suddenly going to come. He will dwell with us, as the last verse of Zechariah 2 says, and other places. And be with us throughout the rest of this end-time age, whether visible or just there, It does not specifically say, but it doesn't matter. If he's there, he will be guiding, leading, directing, and be Emmanuel, God with us, not just God is salvation, his other name. He'll suddenly come, but who will abide that day? Who can stand when he appears? Now, I think he's talking about two appearances here. When he first comes to his church with the two witnesses of the remnant, who will stand then? And when he comes then to gather his saints, as we read in Psalm 50, his temple, that's another time in glory, as opposed to just being with and helping through the situation. 
And he'll be a refiner's fire. Who can stand that judgment? Who will rise? And he says not to oppress the widow, the fatherless, those, and not to turn aside the stranger in verse 5. For I am the eternal, I change not, otherwise you sons of Jacob would have been consumed by now. Even from the days of your fathers, verse 7, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the eternal of hosts. But you said, what do you mean return? We're here, aren't we? We're here. Aren't we doing what you said? We're here on Pentecost, in fact. Return to me and I will return to you, says the eternal of hosts. What do you mean? How shall we return? Will a man rob God, he says? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And he says, you're cursed with a curse, this whole church. How have we robbed him of tithes and offerings? Some may not pay them. But haven't we as a church, by idolatry, by self-righteousness, by lukewarmness, robbed him of his people? He is going to redeem 10%. He has cursed the church. He has split and divided the church, and that is a curse. He's vomited it out, but he's going to bring back a tenth. And he uses the analogy of physical tithe as an example of that and what he intends to do. That's the one he uses, because we already read in Isaiah 6 that a tenth will return. So he says, bring all your tithes into the storehouse, that there be meat in my house. He's calling for repentance. He's calling for returning to him and bringing his tithe to him, his ten percent that will be faithful, the ten that went under the rod that will be chosen. Many called, but the rod will choose the tenth, the ten percent. says, if you'll do that, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He won't destroy the fruits of your ground, and you'll have blessings. And those that speak often of God and do these things, he says later in the chapter, will be blessed and will be part of the kingdom of God. So it's a call to the end-time church that has gone astray to repent and turn to God and give him his tenth. That's what he's calling on us to do. So we're here on Pentecost, and I hope that we are seeing from some of these scriptures some meanings we may have overlooked before in the depth of what God is doing and why he does everything in the exact way he does it. Sabbath years, jubilees, fruit trees, we could go on and on. It all fits together and has spiritual meaning for the future to show that he is God. Haggai 2, I won't turn there, but toward the end of the chapter he talks about has the pomegranate, has the fig tree, has the vine, have these things produced any fruit yet? says no. 
He's calling the remnant, the tithe together. He's going to provide the leadership. And he's going to say, but nothing's happened. And he says, from this day, the 9th and 24th, will I bless you. And then he talks about Zerubbabel being a signet and how he will shake the heavens and the earth. So it's talking about the end time, not way back in history somewhere. When he shakes the heavens and the earth. Ezekiel 17 is another good one to tie in here. I'll do it briefly. This is the chapter that talks about the church. It's a riddle and a parable. The great eagle with the wings and so on, which represented Herbert Armstrong here at the end in a city of merchants in a land of traffic, Pasadena, L.A. Anyway, uh, verse 5, He took also of the seed of the land and planted it as a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. A willow grows out of a lot of water. And this was good water that God planted the church in. Good doctrine, good teaching. The waters of life. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature whose branches turned toward Herbert Armstrong instead of to God. And the roots thereof were under him, so it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. So it didn't really produce as a tree, but more as a low-growing vine. Spread out a lot, got pretty big. But then another eagle, another leader, a, an Assyrian, a Russian, took over and it died. It withered on the vine, as this chapter says it would do. But notice, verse 22, after it describes Worldwide Church of God and what happened to it, Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. So God, who is the highest cedar? Christ. Tallest tree around. And I'll set it, a branch of it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So from the great cedar Christ... A twig will be taken and planted. Start small. Remnant, 10%, and two leaders. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. So, the latter temple, under the two witnesses, is going to produce fruit for the 144,000 for the fruit of Pentecost. It will bear fruit and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So people will come from all over the world as that faithful remnant that God will stir, as Haggai says, to come. They will see what he's doing, and they will come. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Eternal, have spoken and have done it. We have a great calling. We have a tremendous mission. We have a purpose that goes beyond human understanding and comprehension. You and I, right here, have understanding that very, very few, even in the church, have today. 
I don't know of any anywhere other than where it has been proclaimed that have even heard it. Unless they get it off the internet. It was proclaimed in great part before this organization began in another one, so they've heard it at least partially. What these stories and the Bible, these scriptures mean. Let's go to Isaiah 26, or Isaiah 27, excuse me. Isaiah 27. And verse 6. <clears throat> he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth or the world with fruit. So he's going to take a tree and plant it. We just read in Ezekiel. And it'll produce for the world. That will be the first fruits, the bride of Christ, who are there to feed the world. Then, as Israel is drawn physically, they will be there to feed them. And then the great white throne judgment to feed them, as I said before. So it will produce, it will blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And we, as spiritual Israel, will be the forerunners, the beginners of that process. The main ones involved with Christ. Let's go to Hosea 14. Hosea 14. And here I'll begin in verse 5. Hosea 4, the end of this book, which is about primarily Ephraim, this land, this nation, where God's work has been and will be done, that is a worldwide work emanating from the American Southwest, the original promised land. Verse 5, I will be as the dew to Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. Lebanon was known for cedars and big trees with great root uh, uh, can't say the word with lots of roots. His branches shall be spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. So Israel planted as a tree, as an olive tree that produces fruit, like a guy too. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. Tree is there, planted for people to come to. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon, sweet-smelling wine. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree, for me is your fruit found. So he uses the analogy here again of a tree and how Israel, spiritual Israel first, will produce for the world and then Israel itself will produce and also be there when the great white throne judgment comes to help with billions of people. Those who qualify during the millennium will be there. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. 
Now let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. And see what the New Jerusalem, that is the 144,000 with the Father and the Son, they're ruling them, what they produce. Father and the Son will be the temple of the New Jerusalem, as we see at the end of chapter 21. And he showed me a pure river of water, chapter 22, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, waters are in the Bible, again, as doctrine. So, I think you can put two meanings here to this very easily. That good teaching, the water of life, will come from the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem. But also, physical fruits will be produced or made for the people living physically during that time. Proceeds out of the throne of God and the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bore twelve manners of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curses, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Let's think of the church as selection is made. He says he's going to select and begin growth there in Ezekiel 17. He says we will appear as a tree there in Hosea 14, planted for the good of the world. Remember back now what we read in Leviticus. The first three years you're as uncircumcised. The fourth year is a gift to God. The fifth year is usable. Between now and the return of Christ, there is going to be the fall of this nation, and it will be taken into captivity. But God is going to gather a few people to Zion in Ephraim, Jeremiah 31. And the word of God will begin to go out but not until the temple has been built and Jerusalem has been built, then the abomination is set up after the 70th week and Jerusalem is taken over by the Gentiles. So, God makes a selection right there, does He not? Matthew 24 tells you that when you see that abomination, you are to flee to the mountains of Judea, to Zion. Flee to Zion, Zechariah 2 tells us, and the RSV is the right translation. Flee from the army of the north and flee to Zion is the meaning there. There's a cut made when God stirs people to come to be his remnant. There's another cut made when we flee to the hills of Judea when the abomination is set up. Don't go back in your house. Don't go get the dog. You know, just go. Now, anyone left behind will be killed by the beast power. So a cut is made. And then, those who flee to Zion are the ones planted there as first fruits 
preparing for the first resurrection. But for those three and a half years, there needs to be a growth period. From the time a tree is planted, the first three years, it's uncircumcised. It's not really usable. So it needs to be driving on toward perfection and producing the fruits of perfection during that period of time. Haven't we been in turmoil and planted in the world? And we're brought out of that and planted in good soil in Zion. And for the first three years, it's going to be intensive. The instruction, the learning, the preparation, the growth, the maturity to be of use. Then when Christ returns, those people who are prepared and ready rise to meet Him in the air... They go to the throne of God before the, on the sea of glass before the Father and are married to the Son, the day of atonement. They are made acceptable as the tithe of God, as the first fruits, 144,000 of them, for His use. Then for a year, we have a honeymoon with Christ, may be cut short, seven last plagues may be, and so may that year. A year to settle in, to have a honeymoon, to be the bride. The fifth year, all men can eat of us. Be provided for the whole world that is left in the millennium. So even the last period of time fits the analogy of a tree being planted and how God will plant it in Zion. And over a period of about five years, you could say three and a half for the tribulation, but it's roughly three. The fourth year crop is good for God. And the fifth is then prepared for the whole world. So this day gives us the law that brings peace and happiness. It's about liberty that the law brings from the penalties of sin and death. It's about God choosing a particular tree, a particular animal, the one that went under the rod, to provide for the world in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. This is a very pivotal day, and it's the day on which the Holy Spirit of God came as a comforter and a help and a strengthener that we might see this through and produce fruits of perfection.